How many of you guys spent time with family this past week? All right, that's a lot. We got one person that was excited about it. Um, I've got to be a little bit careful because my wife's in the audience, and we went up to see her family in upstate New York. Um, and the only problem with seeing family in winter is that you're usually stuck inside. And when you're stuck inside with a lot of people, there can be discussions that take place. So we had my in-laws. I've grown to love them uh, after seven years of marriage. Her mom and dad are divorced. Her dad brings his girlfriend. The mother, the divorced mother is there. My brother-in-law is there, his wife, his three-year-old son, and his one-and-a-half-year-old son, and then his wife's mother and two, her two brothers. So we have a full house, and we have everybody kind of crammed into one spot. And you know, after a little while, with three-year-old kid and one-and-a-half-year-old kid, things can get a little chaotic, and there can be discussions. So this morning, we get to talk about questions out of the book of Job, and I've decided to frame seven questions in the form of what typically takes place in a normal discussion during this time. So the first question that we're going to talk about is closed questions. These are yes or no questions, and these are simple answers. Did I do something wrong? If I ask this question, the answer from my wife is usually yes. The second question, open-ended question, how did that make you feel? Men, this question will likely be longer than you anticipated. Third question, Recall questions. When was the last time I did something like that? If you're like me, uh, she might say like 15 minutes ago. Like it's usually a shorter period of time than you initially thought. The fourth question, what does that have to do with what we're talking about now? Clarification questions. They're great questions. Men, there's a warning with this one. The answer that she gives is always, I repeat, always logically connected to the topic that you're discussing at the moment. If it doesn't appear logically connected, this is not the point you want to argue with her rationale. Let it go. The next question, rhetorical questions. You thought I meant that? These are replaced or responded to with blank stares usually. And if you're smart, you'll apologize or explain what you meant. If you don't have time to explain what you meant and she starts responding, you're usually in bigger trouble than you thought. The next question, probing assumption questions. Why would you think I meant that? This is actually a good question because we get inside the other person's head a little bit to figure out why they feel what they feel. And if you value your relationship, your marriage, or the person you're speaking with, you can seriously learn something that'll help you out in what they explain about their emotions, why they responded the way they did. And the final one, the one that we're gonna spend most of our time on this morning is leading questions. Why couldn't you address this in a nicer way? Or why did you wait till now to say that? These questions presume an answer. Oftentimes it presumes the fact that the other person is in the wrong. And if you end your discussion with this question, you've just created a whole new problem for yourself. See, questions are a powerful tool in communication. They're one of the greatest ways that we learn. However, something happens. Questions become quickly distorted. They can become downright antagonistic and loaded with different meanings. An article published by Bloomberg Businessweek in 2009 raised the question how leaders can ask good questions. I'll read a quote from it, and it may remind you of a 
time at your work where this happened. Like notorious law school professors who interrogate their students until the truth appears, many business leaders hold meetings where they pepper employees with rapid-fire questions. But too often, managers' questions are designed to show off their own knowledge rather than actually solicit new ideas or new information. If you've ever been in a meeting like that, this is kind of the leading questions that presume that that individual already has the answer. They're basically firing questions after you, one after another, to demonstrate that you do not know what you're doing or you don't have the answer. They don't even give you time to respond because in their mind, your response is not valid anyway. From the earliest of ages, we're programmed to ask questions. But something happens in our lives as we gain more knowledge, more experience. All of our questions change from inquiring questions, these innocent questions that seek new information, to leading questions, questions that challenge the other person's knowledge compared to ours. So this morning, I want to ask you, what kind of questions are you asking God? How do you make sense of the obstacles that you face in this past year? You will face obstacles in the coming year, and how will you face those? What kind of questions will you ask? How will you deal with your obstacles? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are king of kings, that you are in control. Father, we ask this morning that you would reveal to us who you are through your word, that as we look at the book of Job, that his life would serve as an example for for us, Lord, that we would gain something from it that would help propel us into the new year. In your name, amen. We're going to look at the book of Job, and we're going to be kind of bouncing all over through the book of Job. So if you want to open up there now, uh, it'd be a good idea. It's about a third of the way through your English Bible. The key passages will be on the screen. The book of Job is considered one of the oldest remaining texts that we have. It's an artistic novella, this thing that's been intricately created to show a story of one man's life. And this man, Job, has everything going for him. He has good health. He has a beautiful wife that fears God. He has sons, and they have wives, and they have children. He has more wealth than anyone else in the area. He is respected in his community as having great wisdom, as having great knowledge, understanding religious tradition better than everyone else, and everyone looks up to him until one day an adversary approaches God and says, Job's understanding of you, Job's faith in you is only as good as his good fortune. He's a fair-weather fan. If you strike Job and take everything from him, his faith will be gone. And so one day... Job suffers unfortunate unfortunate consequences one after another. He loses his family. His sons die. His his family perishes. His wealth is stricken with plague. He loses his health. Even his wife, who fears God, says, you might as well curse God and die. And Job is brought to his low point. He says, I wish I'd never been born. If only I had died in the womb, my life would have been better. And so Job suffers great pain, great suffering. In each one of his friends, he has four friends that gather around him and attempt to alleviate his pain. And what they do, instead of alleviating his pain, they begin to provide quick religious answers of why this is happening. They turn to Job on the basis of their experience, their tradition, and their understanding, say, you must have sinned. That's why. You've brought this all on yourself. I got a side note here 
for those who are suffering or uh, who have suffered. This is not the way you comfort someone who's suffering. Job's friends did something amazing for the first seven days that they met him. They sat in silence and they cried with him. They empathized with him. They felt his pain. And Job's affliction only grew worse when they opened their mouth and tried to provide quick answers to his situation. Job and his four friends all, on the basis of their experience and their tradition, thought they had it figured out. Job said, I've done nothing wrong, so God must be in the wrong. And all of Job's friends said, well, God does nothing wrong, so Job must be in the wrong. But they all had in their framework, their mind, how God must operate. Each of them offered questions that challenged the other person's position. They offered leading questions that presumed they already had the answer and were not seeking any new information. Like the boss reference in Business Week, Job peppers God with question after question for 30-some chapters, challenging God's authorities, telling God that he is in the wrong. He begins somewhat innocently with sugar-coated criticisms. Does anybody use the sugar-coated criticism? This is, this is kind of what I mean by it. Are you wearing that? This is grammatically a question. Job is asking God questions, but he's sugarcoating his criticism. What this is sugarcoated for is do not wear that, or that is ugly, or it doesn't fit well, or it doesn't match. It's trying to be somewhat nice about the whole thing, and that's how Job is starting out. Or like the famous situation I had this past week where, like I said, there's a three-year-old, and his mother always presumes that he's up to no good. I don't know why for a three-year-old you would think that. But he, she constantly said, Joseph, what are you doing? This is usually code for, are you getting into trouble right now? Are you doing something wrong? One of my favorites, and uh, I can probably use this more than my wife because I'm a little bit more arrogant than she is, but it is the great question, why are you doing it that way? Or why don't you try it this way? It's grammatically a question, but the knee-jerk reaction from each of us and, and her is usually, I know how to do that. I know how to do it. Leave me alone. I've got this. Because something in them understands that there's an underlying motivation of the person asking the question that's saying, you do not know how to do it. Why are you doing it that way? Presumes, I know how to do it, and you do not. Let's look at Job 7, verses 19 through 20. Job begins to ask God questions. Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? Don't you have something better to do? Can't you leave me alone, get off my back for a little while? Let me live my life. My life was going pretty well until you decided to interfere. Verse 20, if I have sinned, what have I done against you, a watcher of men? If I've messed up, and I'm sure I'm not perfect, it doesn't affect you. Let it go. Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Job is challenging God, saying he's deserved, done nothing to deserve the pain that he suffered. Leading questions. Job asks leading questions, and leading questions place you in a position of control. 
perceived or otherwise. This is that idea that I am in control because I have the answers. What happens when something you didn't think was possible actually occurs? Whether good or bad, our world is shaken, right? We don't think something can happen, and then all of a sudden something changes. It interrupts our life and our thinking. This is why mystery movies are so good. Because for the first hour of the movie, the producer spends time creating a framework in our mind by which we interpret and understand the events, the words of each character, the situations. We begin to understand and project into the future the way things will turn out. But a good mystery movie, a good movie with a twist, starts interjecting new information, new ideas that slowly deconstruct what we've been raised to believe until all of a sudden a new reality is introduced and we see everything different. We start connecting the dots of why certain characters did certain things. All of this, we are viewing the past, though. New information is introduced into our lives that changes that reality. And this is what God sets out to do in Job's life. Job has built his whole life on his past experience with God. And God is setting out to deconstruct Job's mentality, his framework that says God can only do this much or God can only act this way. If I act this way, God's response will be this. And God is saying, I am much bigger than that. He begins deconstructing Job's mentality. Job 38 verses 1 through 3. This is that moment in Job's life where his world is shaken. He's lost everything in the past, but all of a sudden, God's ready to reveal new information to him that deconstructs his mindset, and God says, get ready. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and saying, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. Gird your loins like a warrior. Put your belt on. Put your sword on. Get ready for battle. I will question you and you will answer me. God is finally saying, I've taken enough of your assaults. You've questioned me. Presuming that you have the answers, I'm going to now question you. See what answers you have. So for the next three chapters, God goes on this questioning scheme of, where were you when I created the world? Who puts wisdom into man's heart? Who gives life to the beasts of the field? And question after question, this rapid-fire question like the boss in Business Week, Job remind, or God reminds Job that he does not have the answers. Job's kicked back on his heels, and he has no response. God's questions climax in verse 40, verses 8 through 10. He says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And this is Old Testament language for, did you create the world? Are you as powerful as I am? Can you create miracles? Do you have the ability to bring things to life? Can your voice thunder like his? And this is the ironic part given Job's recent pain. If so, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. And God is saying, if you think you have the answers, if you think you're in control of your own life, then why don't you reverse what you just suffered through? This is the the frustrating thing for me is because I feel like Job should answer the question of suffering. 
It should answer the question of injustice, but God never answers that question because he's got a bigger thing in mind. He's got a mentality in Job's life that he has to deconstruct before he can even begin to address these other periphery issues. What God is doing here in this sentence is deconstructing Job's framework. He's asking Job, what framework do you want to operate under? If you think you have it under control, do you want to operate under your framework? Job's framework, our framework, can only see the past and can only understand the present in limited terms. And God is saying, you can choose to operate in that. You can choose to operate in your skills, your experience, your traditions, but those things only see what's behind you. Or you can choose to operate on a God framework that sees the past, present, and future in one glance. See, what we think in our mind is that we are determined, our future is determined and limited by the past that we've experienced. That the things of yesterday determine the things of tomorrow. But God is saying, I have a framework that I want to exchange with you that says, I know what can happen in the future. I know that if you allow me, I can transform the things that you've suffered yesterday into something that will give you great joy tomorrow. So what is a healthy response? If Job gets it wrong up to this point, what is the proper response? Let's look at Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Job says something brilliant. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Something I need to repeat more in my life. He says, you, God, have said, listen, I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job's final response is the climax of the whole book. It says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Job's encounter with God comes in his moment of questioning God, not in his suffering, but in the moment of his questioning God that brings a new revelation that opens his eyes. What he had heard had built in his mind this framework, this limited tradition that said God can only operate within these confines. But like a good mystery movie, God has introduced new information, new ideas, and now Job's eyes are open to a different reality that God has something bigger and greater in store. We need to make the, the change here, the note that the type of questions you ask do not limit God. God is big enough to handle our leading questions, the questions that challenge his authority, the questions that challenge his control over our life. He's not afraid of them. He's not afraid of us being angry with him. He's big enough to handle that. What I'm talking about here this morning is Job's heart being humbled. Job's prideful and arrogant heart, and oftentimes my heart, to be able to see what God wants to do needs to be deconstructed a little bit. I can build a wall between me and God and say, this is how I'm going to operate and this is how you're going to operate and put that limitation on that relationship. And God will have to deconstruct that. Or I can begin to deconstruct it myself and say, instead of me thinking that in my finite understanding, the thing that understands only the past, I've got this thing figured out. I can start deconstructing that and saying, God, I want you to move in my mind, in my heart, in a way that allows you to impact me. 
Job had built up such a defense that God had to break through that wall. Job gets knocked back on his heels. God has to get his attention. However, an inquiring heart opens us up to hearing from God. See, where a leading questions place us in a position of growth, inquiring questions place us in a position of growth. Leading questions place us in a position of control, but inquiring questions place us in a position of growth. And this morning, that's what I want for you, is a position of growth in this coming year. As you look in the past, you can be limited by that past. Or you can say, God, I believe that you've got much more for me, and I want to grow in a new area this year, in a new path that you have for me that I can't even begin to think or imagine. Job's tradition, his experience, were not completely wrong. What you've experienced, the reality of what's made you who you are today is not inherently wrong, but it's two-dimensional. That's not all there is. And that's what Job was relying on. God, with his new introduction of who he was, helps create for Job a three-dimensional view of who he is, this new reality where Job realizes you're not an equation. You're not a math formula where A plus B equals C. My life is not that simple. If you're used to life, which I know you are, you know that life is not that simple. Just because you do a good job at work doesn't mean you get the reward that you deserve. Just because you're nice to somebody doesn't mean they're nice back. Things do not work the way that they seem to work. And what Job had been saying is that, God, I'm upholding my end of the bargain. Where are you? And the challenge is, is that God is bigger. He has more pieces moving on the chessboard than you can ever imagine. And God opens Job's eyes to see a greater reality beyond himself. That's what he wants to do this morning. So you're not limited by the past because God has been deconstructing our mindsets for thousands of years, this idea that God can operate beyond anything that we could ever hope or imagine because he's bigger than we are. That's what makes him God. And when we begin to change our mindset from leading questions that presume we have the answer and he does not to inquiring questions, questions that are, God, who are you? What do you want to do in my life? I don't understand this situation, but God, I want you to use it for what you can. God, I want to find hope. Who are you? Who do you want me to be? These types of questions allow us to be in a position of growth where we can finally understand the path that God has for us. I'm going to invite the communion team to come out because this morning we get to take part of communion. And this is quite possibly the greatest revelation of who God is, and it blows Peter's mind. The first century Jews had developed in their framework, in their mind, the way that God would act in history. They had said Messiah would come, a Savior would come that would deliver Israel from the oppression of Rome. And one day, our nation will be set up above every other nation. And Jesus comes to this earth, and deconstructs that mentality. He tells Peter, I must suffer and die. And Peter's knee-jerk reaction is surely not, Lord. You will not die. You need to deliver us. 
And God goes on to say, unless I die, you cannot have hope. You cannot have life. Your perspective, your mindset is stuck into this nationalized understanding of who Israel would be. But I have a greater plan. I have a plan that is to extend beyond Israel to all of the nations, to bring hope, to bring reconciliation. Your mindset is stuck in offering sacrifices for your errors every day, every year. And instead of trying to work to a place of being good enough, I want to deconstruct that because I have something bigger. I want to make this final once and for all. And so Jesus comes and he dies. Beyond anybody else's expectations or understanding, God offers himself in a way that we didn't even think we needed, in a way that we could not have even imagined. And so this year, as we think of the things that have happened, God wants to do something that we cannot even think or imagine in the coming year. And the way that you can position yourself to receive it and make the most of it is by asking God what he wants to do by asking him who he is, what he wants to reveal to us, asking God to open our eyes to a new reality. So as we take communion this morning, we're reminded that God is bigger. We're reminded that God offers hope, that he can do more than we can think or imagine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that even when we didn't know or didn't think we needed you or when we thought that we had it all under control, Father, that you stepped in. That you said there is more to this than you can think of. You think your problem is small and insignificant in the scheme of things. Well, I care. And I want to change that around. I want you to partner with me. Lord, I ask that as we ask questions of you, that we would begin to partner with you, that we wouldn't take the boss role in our life. But we would ask God, who are you? What do you want to do? How can we be part of what you're doing? I thank you for your sacrifice, for your death, and more importantly, your resurrection, Lord, that we are not left Father, with a dead Savior. But we're offered the life that you have found, the life that you have given. I pray that this year that we would be impacted by that life, that we would begin to live life to the full by partnering with you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.